Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I want to show you something up here. This is a 100-pound weight. This is a 100-pound dumbbell. Uh, and I began wondering, uh, what does it take for somebody to be able to do anything with this 100-pound dumbbell. So uh, I imagine different candidates, different possible candidates who might uh, make some attempt to move this. And so the first candidate is my daughter, Autumn. Uh, now, as you can imagine, if she were to come and try to, to do something to handle this dumbbell, she would uh, have a rough time because it weighs more than she does. Actually, it weighs three times what she weighs. So, uh, so that would be uh, challenging. Then, of course, like, I could try to move the dumbbell, and if I did, if I had to move it from one side of the stage to the other, uh, I, you might see me pick it up with both hands and attempt not to throw my back out as I did it and carry it from uh, one side to the other. But then I thought, what if Arnold had to do something with this dumbbell? Uh, he would be up here. He would probably be curling it for us, right? He would be lifting it up above it. He might throw it up in the air, like twirl it like a baton, right? This guy, he, he can do something with this. And so why, why would Arnold be more equipped than Autumn or me to kind of manhandle this 100-pound dumbbell? Well, the reality is, is that he has put in the time required, the work required to get his body to a place where he would be able to handle that effectively. In fact, he needed to work really, really hard to get his body in a condition where he could truly bear that weight. The same is true of your mind, by the way. There are certain events and realities that your mind, as it is right now, is not prepared to confront. This is why what we call the grieving process exists. Because what happens when you encounter a very heavy reality for your mind to confront, the first stage of the grieving process is denial. And the reason denial exists on the front stage is because your mind is working to protect itself because you, are, you want to create, you're trying to create a barrier between yourself and reality because if your mind runs headlong into that reality, it will not be able to bear the weight. And so we have the grieving process as you walk through it. What's happening is that your mind is increasingly accustoming itself to the reality that it's confronting till you get to the point of, acceptance, and your mind is able to deal with the thing that you're confronting, the reality that you're confronting. So these are different ways that, that aspects of us get prepared to deal with weight. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about the idea of glory. And weight is one of the words used in Scripture for glory. It tells us about the experience that people have when they come into God's glory. It's experienced as a weight. He is heavy when I'm in his presence. So we humans, we were actually created. We talked about this last week in church. We were created to be with God and enjoy him in his glory but what happened is that we rejected God's desires for us. We sinned, we fell, and as a result, something happened. We are corrupted now that we have rejected God. So there's a problem. The problem is corruption and glory cannot coexist, right? They cannot exist in the same place at the same time. Glory can only exist with purity and perfection. Glory can only exist with a person who doesn't lie. 
Glory can only exist with one who pursues God's interests above their own. Glory can only exist with a person who obeys the people that God has placed over them perfectly in every circumstance. Glory can only exist with a person who always only does the right thing. In other words, corrupted things cannot handle glory. We can't carry glory. 1 Timothy 6 speaks of this reality. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God's glory is so heavy that we literally cannot approach him where he is. Like the fallen human cannot carry glory and live. We can't even witness glory and live. And then... God sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect and spotless. And you know what? He could carry it. He could carry the glory of God. Why? Because he had the strength. He had no corruption, right? He was without sin. He was perfect. So, so Jesus came, and then what he did was he covered up his glory. He like put a veil over that glory, but he fully carried it into earth, and he became human. And his coming is an invitation to all people everywhere to come and now give glory to God. The Bible teaches us that that is the right and proper response, that what we are to do is come and give glory to God. I just want to ask the question, how? How do we do that? I mean, if you've been paying attention, we have no glory to give. We're corrupted. We have nothing. We're like grocery shelves at the beginning of the pandemic, right? People wanted food from these things, and they could not find it. They are empty. We are empty. God says, come and give glory, but we have no glory to give. This is the beauty of the arrival of Jesus. Because Jesus enables our nothing to become glorious when we use it to worship him. Right now, to give God glory when we come to him, we can now give back to him what he has already given us. We can, we can give him the most valuable things that we have already received as an act of worship because what he does is he takes the things that could be described as nothing in any other circumstance, but because they're used for him, they become glorious. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter two this morning. Verse one says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So uh, we have wise men who are coming to worship to give glory to Jesus. I just wanna ask three questions about those who are coming to glorify Jesus this morning. These three questions are this. Who are the wise men? That's an important question. Who are they? Number two, how did they know that he was the king of the Jews? And then uh, number three, why worship this Jewish king? That's the third question that we are going to ask this morning. So who are the wise men? 
Over the years, it was assumed that there are three wise men. That is what our tradition has told us. There are three wise men. In reality, uh, we, we read nothing about three wise men. We just read about three gifts, right? So in reality, there, there are maybe two wise men. Maybe there are eight wise men. Maybe there are ten wise men. It's all a possibility. The number doesn't matter, though, as much as who they are, or what their role is, what their title is. They are called wise men in the passage, but the word is literally magi. Uh, if you took it and made it singular, it would be magus or mage. You would hear the word mage. So what are mages? Well, they are a class of civil servants instituted in various kingdoms in order to consult the supernatural for the sake of the king. They are consultants of the supernatural. Right, so in ancient world kingdoms, what they did, the, the, the wise men would have their, mag, or sorry, the kings would have their magi or their wise men give them access to information that they could not have in any other way. They consulted the spiritual realm. They helped give kings access to unconventional knowledge. And they did this by, well, studying prophecies of religion. They interpreted the stars, they interpreted dreams that people had, they told fortunes, they practiced divination. Right? These are the different kinds of things that these, uh, cl this class of uh, magi would institute in order to help their kings consult on what moves they ought to make for their nation. So it's worth noting that in the Jewish mindset, these magi are the most detestable kind of people. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. Listen to what God says about these people and their practices. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination is code word for the greatest extent of corruption that you can possibly imagine. Right? That's what God is saying. They have achieved the greatest extent of corruption that you can imagine. And yet, in the story we read here, we see these abominations coming to worship Jesus. And finally, it says that they were from the east. Where is the east? Well, the fact that they were from the east tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that they were not Jewish, right? Because we're in Judea, and it's saying they're coming from the east of Judea. The second thing it tells us is that they were decidedly not Roman. And the reason we know that is because Judea was on the very eastern edge of Rome. So if you go any further east, you're now outside of Roman territory. So it's quite possible the next territory east of Rome is Persia, modern-day Iran. And it existed for, it stretched to the east for hundreds of miles. It's possible that these were Persian magi, although we don't, can't say with certainty. There's a, there's a relative likelihood that these are Persian magi who are coming to worship Jesus. Why does that matter? In just a second, we'll answer that question when we answer this question. How did they know he was king of the Jews. We don't have a foolproof explanation of this. I just want to let you know that. We're not told how they knew this. It's possible that an angel could have told them. It's possible that God could have given them a dream that revealed this to them, to, uh, that revealed this to them. They could have simply been watching the stars. 
Now, that doesn't explain how they knew the Jewish part, though, but they could have been watching the stars and, and saw that a great king was coming. But I want you to imagine another possibility with me. How many of you in this room have traditions? Raise your hand if you have traditions in this room. Well, yeah, we ought to see most hands going up, right? We have Christmas traditions, right? We've been practicing our Christmas traditions, maybe baking cookies together as a family. We have, because what we have are we have kind of key figures in our family who kind of organize these traditions. Uh, you have patriarchs and matriarchs who are working to either uh, create situations where you're playing games together, you're cooking together, you're eating together, right? Family traditions are very powerful for us. We also have like traditions in our country, right? It, on the 4th of July, our Independence Day, we celebrate the signing of a document that was signed nearly 250 years ago, right? That, that is like a tradition that we honor time and again. And in fact, when I was in school, I had to memorize a certain part of this document, right? That was something that I had to do. This is a tradition that is upheld in our country. For what it's worth, the Magi had traditions as well. Like, in fact, tradition is one of their most significant sources because what they're doing as they try to advise the king is they're trying to also draw on prior sources of knowledge to help the king understand the things that he needs to understand. So let me tell you a story within a story. About 500 years before the event when the Magi came to worship Jesus, there was a Jewish Persian member of the Magi who became a prominent figure in Persian Magi history. And his name was Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish servant during Israel's exile. He served in Babylon when Assyria had taken Israel captive. Assyria, for what it's worth, later became Persia. Persia took over, they, they kicked Assyria out, and then Persia was in charge of Babylon. Daniel was a member of something called the Kasdim, or he was a Chaldean. Right, uh, this is the word in Hebrew, or in, uh, yes, in Hebrew for magi, or wise man. This was the class of people that Daniel was a part of. These people were advisors to the Babylonian king. They connected with the supernatural. So in a sense, uh, this class of people, these Chaldeans, these Castim, these magi, they were magicians and astrologers and diviners. Now Daniel, he was none of those things, but he did have a strong connection with the supernatural, right? He was a worshiper of the one true God. He, uh, and, uh, he was in exile in Babylon. He was made to serve with this group of people, and he brought his connection to Yahweh uh, kind of to bear on the role that he played by interpreting dreams, by having dreams, by writing down prophecy, and so Daniel and three of his friends, they were all kind of invited into this role of, or this kind of class of magi while observing God's law as they did it, right? So they didn't break the law. They worked within the boundaries of the law to still connect with God and bring their supernatural connection to bear on how they advised the king. So I want you to then read this in Daniel 1.20. Daniel and his three friends, in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Translation, no one had ever witnessed magi like Daniel and his friends, never before in their history. 
So one of the things that Daniel did while he was serving in Babylon as a Magi is that he wrote down prophecies that God had given him. Now, before I tell you what he wrote down, I just want to ask you some questions first. So number one, like if, if you are a part of a class of workers who value supernatural connection, first if, second if, if one of the main sources of information that this class of people use is prophecy, and third if, if you are the most prominent member of that class who has ever lived, don't you think that some of these incredibly tradition-oriented people would seek to hold on some, to some of the traditions that you established while you were working among them? So what did Daniel write down? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, the other thing that the book of Daniel does is it logs a timeline from now, this prophecy, to when that king would arrive. So, the Jewish Persian Magi provides a prophecy from his Jewish God about a king who has glory and whose kingdom is forever. And then 500 years later, these very likely Persian magi come and say, we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Imagine having and being a part of a 500-year-old tradition that said, there is a king coming, a king to end all other kings, and he will be worthy of all worship. That's the experience, likely the experience that these magi who are coming to worship Jesus, likely what they had. And for what it's worth, they were in for the most supernaturally connected experience of their entire lives. So our last question, why worship this Jewish king? I want you to notice with me that the wise men in what they are doing are making an incredibly political statement. What do they do? The first thing they do is this. They left their kingdom and entered into Caesar's kingdom in order to get to Jerusalem. This means that they left the territory of one powerful king and entered into the territory of the most powerful king in the entire world, but they didn't care about either of those kings. They went to a little podunk corner uh, kind of capital of a small aspect of Rome so that they could go to that palace and find a king there. They went to Jerusalem. They, in fact, went to Jerusalem's palace because in their mind, they knew they were looking for a Jewish king, and in their minds, the place that you would find a Jewish king is in a Jewish palace. So that's the first thing that they did. The second thing that they did is they claimed to have seen a star. They saw a star. There is one other significant king who had a star connected to his birth, and his name was Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had a star that rose. In fact, if you look on Caesar's coins, there is a star in the little picture on Caesar's coins, and that is to, to display the significance of the kind of king that he would be. And these magi come along and they say, you know what, we've been reading the stars, and there's a better king. So they come, 
and they say this. And then the third thing that happens is that when they walk into Herod's court, they didn't know they were doing this, but they actually shamed Herod and his entire court when they came looking for the Messiah. It says that they they were asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then it says this in in verse 3. Oh, sorry, there's Caesar. I went the wrong way. It says in verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. What's troubling about this situation to them? These guys, from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, they come, and they know more about the Messiah's arrival than people in Jerusalem know about the Messiah's arrival. Right? They know more about the king of the Jews than the current king of the Jews knows. And, and so these people are all kind of in a panic. They're thinking, why are these foreign abominations, remember that's what they're called, why are these foreign abominations looking for our Messiah when we didn't even know he was here? And so, so these magi, they get instruction that he's been born in Bethlehem, so they go, and what do they find? Verse 9. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They finally discover where this star has been leading them. They find Bethlehem. Likely, now for what it's worth, likely several months after Jesus has been born. But think of their anticipation. Our kings are always fighting. Their territories are always changing. War is endless. But you know what? Daniel told us all those years ago, a king better than every other king is coming. Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and every dominion shall serve and obey him. You see, I think they knew. I think they knew the implication of what this meant. I think they knew that God himself was coming to reign as king. I think they put the pieces together in the prophecy that the one who has authority above everything is arriving to bring his kingdom, that God in the flesh would rule and reign forever. So imagine that being a part of the tradition that you come up with and then you get to be the one that is finally taking the steps towards seeing this king. That's where their joy comes from. The hope of all nations is on the other side of that door. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Their fourth highly political act that they made is that they forsook all other allegiances and gave their best to this king. The word worship literally means is used in the context of bowing down and kissing the feet of a king. 
It is bowing down and kissing the feet of the king. What they do is they bow down before Jesus, and this tells us that their hearts belonged to him above all else. And then they gave their treasures to him. And these are valuable things that are meant to acknowledge a king. So, so with their hearts went the things that they had. They gave it all to Jesus. So for what it's worth, if anyone had nothing to bring, it was these guys, right? They had nothing. They were foreigners. They were lawbreakers. They were abominations. But here's what they didn't know as they approached this king. God's plan was for this king to die, to be punished as a lawbreaker, even though he was perfect, so that lawbreakers could come and be welcomed in his kingdom. So that when they give him their hearts and when their treasure falls in it, the things that before would have been nothing can be received as glorious. So what? Worship him. Give him your heart. This is the first and primary call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you agree with him that your allegiance belongs to him above all other allegiances? Will you agree with him in that? Then worship him and give him your praise. Right? Say, even, like, even if you don't feel it, verbalize to him, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Right? Thank you that you've paid a debt that I cannot pay. Thank you that even my weak worship at its weakest can be accepted when it's directed at, as praise to you. Jesus, you are king over everything. Say words to him. Speak the truths that he represents. Speak to him what you know to be true about him. Give him praise. And then finally, worship him and give him your treasure. What do you value? What is important to you? How do you take that and orient it towards him and lift him above all other things? Because here's what I know. When I am coming before God, I do not have much to bring to the table. But Jesus, in his coming, he enabled my nothing to actually become glorious when it's directed in worship of him. So church, would you pray with me, please? Oh, Jesus, I am grateful for your coming. Lord, that you could take a person like me who has been broken down and who has been rebellious and who has walked through corruption and Lord, you could make me something more than that. You could take the gifts that I have to bring and that you could make them glorious, that they could actually ascribe glory and honor and power to you. So Lord, as we continue in worship this morning, would you enable us to acknowledge who you are with whole hearts? I pray for any person in this room who is holding out against you. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that you need to do to convince them 
of the reality of who you are. Your coming had been foretold for ages and people from other nations knew about it. They tracked the timelines. They were waiting for the day when you arrived. And this is a glorious thing that indeed the king of all kings has come. Gathering in people who look forward expectantly to the day when he will come again. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your son's mighty name. Amen.